So glad to be here with you this morning. My name is Dwight, one of the pastors of Church 21, and um, I am I'm feeling okay this morning. Uh, you know, that whole um, thing that most of Montreal is suffering with, somehow I'm suffering with it too. And being a pastor on Sunday morning is one of those things where it's like, you can't just uh, be in your jammies. I guess I could have come in my jammies this morning. And uh, so part of, my, part of the things that I took this morning to help myself feel better were these cough drops, really amazing, except they made my throat and tongue go numb. So if I say really funny words this morning, uh, it's not because I'm trying to create new words, it's just because it's for your benefit, it's for your fun this morning. I felt like you needed a more fun Sunday morning, so I numbed my tongue. Here we are. Let me pray, and uh, I'll pray that my tongue would become unnumb, and we'll get going. Jesus, thank you that you are here, and you're active, and you're moving. Thank you that you uh, love your people. Thank you that you are offering out to people who don't yet know you to become your people, and that this, this invitation is, is wide, that it, it's... It doesn't have to do with where we were born or our skin color or our language or our ethnicity, but rather it's, it's in the fact that we find ourselves as, as enemies of you and that you, you love your enemies and that you came for your enemies to make us part of your family. And so would you speak to us through this, this text today? We love you and we need you. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Do you want bad news or good news first? How many of you want bad news first? All right. Good news. Well, there's like one of you. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to go there. All right, but that's actually the way the sermon is formed is around the bad news first. And that's the way this text is formed as well. So we're in the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one on your way out. You can also download one on your phone uh, right now. But it would be pretty helpful for you to have one as we're going through uh, this series. Let me do a quick review on the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book in the Bible written by a guy named John. Now, John followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. John probably was about 12 years old when he started to follow Jesus. So when you think about the disciples and being around one another, if you've watched the, the show The Chosen, I still think they got that wrong. I think that they've aged them a little too old. It's not middle-aged men trying to find their way. It's young teenagers trying to figure out what they're supposed to be doing. And so John, as his 12-year-old, begins following Jesus. And now we arrive where John's this 80-year-old man writing the book of Revelation from the island of Patmos, which is 15 kilometers off the coast of Turkey. And John isn't renting an Airbnb. He's not chilling. He's riding out the last days of his Christianity there. Rather, he's been banished there. The Roman Empire has banished him there, trying to wipe out Christianity and remove it completely from this planet because Christianity and uh, emperor worship did not go together. Either you worship Caesar as Lord or Jesus as Lord. And that's it. And so John would not bow his knee to Caesar. And so he was banished on this island. And he gets the book of Revelation. It's a gift to him from his friend, Jesus. And in chapter one, we got to see this marvelous big picture of who Jesus really is. And then in chapters two and three, which we did for our all church gathering a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus writing letters to his church. He knows what's going on and his encouragement or admonishment and rebuke to the churches for how to live in Babylon. Now, Babylon is in the book of Revelation as any anti-God system or society. And so we too live in Babylon. It's not this one little place in the Middle East somewhere, but we too live in the midst of Babylon. And Jesus is trying to help us understand how we're to live there. Then last week, I believe last week, Jordan was here and he preached on Revelation 4 and 5. And in Revelation 4 and 5, there's a door that is opened where we get to actually see into heaven. And in heaven, there's one throne. There's only one seated on that throne. 
and every being in all of heaven is on their faces before the one on this throne, that he is worthy. We sang about that already. Worthy is your name. Worthy, worthy, worthy. There are beings that exist in the heavens right now that their whole job is to say, holy, holy, holy. It's like you roll up. What's my job description? Say these three words. I can manage that, especially when you're in the presence of the one who is only holy all the time, perfect, other, worthy. And then there was a scroll. As we saw into this throne room, there was a scroll. And the scroll was all of history. And the scroll had seven seals on it. So no one could actually get into history. And then John is weeping as he's seeing this, that, that history won't fully be realized or known. And then one steps out from behind the throne, this lion lamb representing Jesus. And he steps forward and he takes the scroll and he's going to open up the seals the seals represent ownership, that Jesus owns history. History is not owned by Canada and the U.S. or the G7. History is not owned by the next empire that's going to come. History is not owned by whatever nation you belong to or language or people group. History is owned by Jesus. It's his story. He owns it. And so what we're going to see over the next few weeks is three different versions of the same story. Today, we're going to see it from the perspective of the seals being opened up. Next week, we'll see these trumpets, trumpets of judgment that are being um, played. And then in a few weeks from now, we'll see these bowls of God's wrath and how that's getting worked out. But the book of Revelation, as if you've read the book before, and I would encourage you to do it, and I would actually encourage you to do it all in one sitting and to read it aloud to yourself. But as you read it, you'll become frustrated if you only think Western not Western movie Western, uh, like John Wayne type thing, but A to Z, because it's not that. And we're going to see that today. John is going to get visions that jump around. They're not chronological. And God doesn't care that you don't like that it's not chronological. He's not freaking out like, oh, I wish I would have said it better. We submit to what he has, has said. And so what we're going to see is the breaking of these seals today. And these breaking of the seals is going to have a cosmic impact it's going to be massive. We're going to see the number four a lot. Um, number seven is completeness in terms of the, the complete work of God. But number four is cosmic completeness. So completeness in this world. So we'll see things like the four winds and the four corners of the earth. We'll see the four horsemen and the four living creatures. But this cosmic impact or this cosmic reality is important because all of the cosmos is going to come against this resurrected king and his kingdom. That's what this is really all about. What we're going to see in this passage is a massive challenge to the kingdom of Jesus. When Satan took Jesus out into the wilderness in his life and tempted him, he said, if you really are the son of God, and he gave him three different temptations, well, a very similar thing is going to take place here. If you really are the kingdom of God, if you really are that powerful Jesus to be in charge of this kingdom, then let us come against you. Let us come against you. And it's actually Jesus who opens up the seals. If some enemy is at my door, I'm not going to open my door and be like, yeah, come on in. I've got tea. Oh, you have a gun. Oh, neat. Yeah, no, I have soda too and, you know, whatever, whatever I can give you. Jesus seed the armed forces and he opens the seals anyway. He unlocks the door. He opens it. He says, come on in. 
in a very real sense, Jesus is so confident in his resurrected kingdom that he opens the seals and says, bring it. Bring it. Let's see what type of power you have against my power. Try it. In essence, Jesus invites his enemies. Jesus invites these powers of hell to see if they can actually overcome what he's accomplished in the cross and in his resurrection. And so we're going to see these four horsemen. It's kind of a, a strange text. We're going to see these four horsemen. And the four horsemen are released. We'll see them released in sequence, as Alyssa read for us. But it's not that there's a period of time that's going by where like, okay, first rider, go. Okay, second rider, go. They're all being released at the same time. It's not periods of history that are going through these. It's all happening all at once. And this isn't a future thing to take place. This is something that's consistently and currently happening right now. And I want to note just before we, we get into the text, you're like, we haven't even gotten into the text yet. I know. Um, I know. But the note is that these enemies, they actually need permission and they need to be gifts, given gifts from God to actually try and overthrow him. I mean, how confident do you need to be? Right? Sometimes when I wrestle with my kids, Malachi's here, sometimes when I wrestle with them, I'm like, oh, try this move, right? And they try it, and then I'm like, boom, you know, gentle, of course, right? They're all fine. Everything's all good. Don't answer, Malachi. Uh, no, all good. And, but the idea that, like, we give them things. Here's another Nerf gun. Here's another thing. Go ahead and try it, right? I understand that currently my power is more than them. One day I've got to be careful. But currently my power is more than them. And Jesus is saying, my power is so immense that let me give you gifts, my enemies, to try and overtake me. He's so confident. So let's get into the text. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, come. And I heard and I, and I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now white is a color of righteousness. White is a color of, of good. So some commentators have said, we think that this is Jesus. But most commentators say, no, this is not Jesus even though we do see Jesus later coming on a, a white horse, we see his people later coming on white horses and wearing white robes. Really, this rider is one who comes to conquer and take what isn't his. He's a rider that's full of deception and imitation. Now, if I want to take what's yours, am I going to come to you with a gun? Maybe. Maybe. But if I want to win you long term, I'm probably, probably going to come to you in such a way that I can deceive you and win you over so that you for a long period of time will give me what I want. This is this rider. He comes with deception and imitation and evil. He seems good, but he comes to conquer and take what isn't his. His deepest desire is to snuff out and remove the kingdom of God as Jesus has brought it and to remove those who are persevering. And this conquering spirit is still in the world. This rider is still riding today. Ever since the resurrection of Jesus, this rider has been riding, trying to conquer and take what isn't his. But how does this come up? Well, it's whenever people say, you're in the way of me getting what I want. You ever thought that of someone? 
if you just weren't here, then I could actually get what I want. Maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your parent, maybe it's um, a rival, maybe it's a team. I don't know what it is, but that idea of if you, it, today there's kind of a big game, right? Uh, Super Bowl, no one cares here, I know. There's like three of us. Um, my team sucked this year, so they're not playing, so I can just eat food and be happy for whoever wins. My wife's like, who are you cheering for? I'm like, the game. I'm cheering for the game today. It's going to be amazing, right? Someone's going to win. Go sports. Go score. It's awesome. Um, and some of you need to learn football as well so that you can come to my parties and be knowledgeable, right? And when you learn more about football, come and tell me, and I will invite you to my Super Bowl parties. Um, but anyway, conquering spirit. Conquering spirit. I need what is yours, and I need to take it from you. That conquering spirit is still riding in the world, specifically through the second rider. Let's go to verse 3 to 4. These riders are all working together. They're not in opposition to one another. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Red, blood, war. That's what this rider is bringing. He has a sword just like Jesus, just like the first rider, imitating Jesus. This enemy is an imitator of that which is good, right, and true. But this rider comes to remove peace. How does he remove peace? Well, he convinces us, people made in the image of God. We believe that, that God created everyone and that everyone is created equal and with dignity and that we're made in the image of him. And that's why we have that equality and dignity. Not because some human rights coalition figured that out. Every human rights coalition actually is imitating God. God made people equal and to have equal footing. And this rider comes to say, Hey, you know what? French people, you're better than the English people. You should go to war with them. English people, you're better than the French people. You should go to war with them. And this rider gives you all a bunch of, a bunch of weapons and throws them out there, and he just stands back and watches as we fight one another. Watches as nation goes against nation and family against family. Right, Shakespeare, the Capulets and Montagues, and Romeo and Juliet, um, teams against against teams. Uh, my buddy Adam Ramsey, I was with him. He does ministry in Australia, and he was telling me um, this past week about a, a visit that he made to Papua New Guinea. And he said, "Have you ever seen uh, Papua New Guinea football?" I'm like, "No, I didn't know football was there." He's like, "It's not really football. It's it's when um, it's when two groups of people, usually two different tribes." disagree about something, and there's about 100 men and 100 men, and they grab their machetes and rocks, and they run at each other. Why? Who knows? He said he saw it break out on the streets in one of their, their cities because, now, here it is. Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea tribes were fighting because two Australian rugby teams who played the match in Australia went against one another. We find almost anything to fight over, right? Apples and PCs, and why can't you PC people just wake up and understand what team you're supposed to really be on? Just joking. Just joking. I'm just joking. And you're wrong, but that's fine. Uh, but we, we fight over these things, and war is spiritual. Sometimes the downtown location is like the sleepiest location, so I'm just trying to work these things in, right? Um, this is dark. It's dark in here. We need some tanning lights, I think, in this place, Evan. Let's put that in the budget, all right? Um, but war is spiritual. War is not flesh and blood really against flesh and blood. War is spiritual. That this rider wants for us to overcome one another. 
But Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus brings a peace that this world has not known. And if you don't know Jesus, you ultimately won't know true peace. You can't. The Prince of Peace is the only one who can distribute these goods to his people. This third rider comes in verse 7 and 8. I mean 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. What's going on here? Well, this black horse represents greed and injustice. A day's work all day long. Imagine you work all day long doing whatever you're doing. At the end of the day, it's like, oh, amazing. I get paid. End of the day, I go. And what can I buy with this? You can buy a bowl of rice for yourself. It's like, yeah, but I have a family. It's like, well, can you do seven days worth of work? If you have seven people in your family, I guess. For me, four kids, wife, got to feed all six of them. Somehow I have to work out working six days of work in a day. Greed and injustice. Why is it so hard for me as a worker? Well, because there are people who are playing the system. The rich are ineffective and, and uninvolved. Did you see what, what that is? Do not harm the oil and the wine. Bring greed and injustice in the world and don't harm the extra things that people are, people with lots of extra get to enjoy. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That's what's going on, right? If the world's richest people got together, right, they could feed the world. And yet they don't. And that's not passing judgment on them. But the rich are unaffected by this, by this rider. Christians were suffering at this time. Um, to be a Christian in the first century Rome, you weren't allowed to uh, be a part of a trade guild, like a trade union. So if you are a, um, you're an artisan baker, and like you make the most amazing uh, croissants, right? Because that's what they were doing in the Roman Empire, clearly making croissants. Um, but if you make the best, right? And it's like, oh, so did you worship Caesar? It's like, no, 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 I worship Jesus. Ah, uh, yeah, you can't sell your goods here. And if you try and sell them anywhere, we're going to come and kill you. And so people were, were suffering because they wouldn't worship the gods of that time. Christians were suffering. But this is bigger than just Christians. Uh, there was a big earthquake in, in Turkey and Syria, right? Lots of people affected. And what the past tells us is that most money, if you were really moved by that and you're like, man, I want to give $100, I want to give $1,000, I want to give whatever, probably about 3 to 4% of what you give actually makes it to really help there. Why? Because the black rider is still riding. Because people see the, the plight of others as an opportunity to hoard for themselves. Because they worship creation instead of the creator. They want the power that creation can give to them, whether that's, that's money or success or approval or whatever it is. But that black rider is still riding. Let me keep moving, otherwise we'll be here all day. Maybe you want to be here all day. So I'll move slower. Put your hand up if you want to move slower, right? Verse 7 and 8, fourth rider. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. This corpse-like rider comes riding on a, on a pale horse, and he rides out to bring death. Now, what's interesting is that God limits him. He says, you can't kill everyone. You only get a quarter. 
you only get a quarter. And you say, well, that's kind of mean of, of God to even allow death at all. But the thing is, we're the ones that sow death into creation. When God made us, he made us without sin. He made us to find our life in him, to have value, meaning, and purpose from him. He made us with these eternal hearts to be with him forever and find all our joy in life in him. We decided we had a better way. We decided that we would go a different way. And we gave God the proverbial finger and we ate from a tree that he said not to, which wasn't, there wasn't something in the fruit that poisoned us. It was our mistrust and distrust of him, which led us to, to rebel against him. We brought the poison. We brought death into everything. And God, even in, even in these riders coming as being gracious, saying, you can't kill everyone. You don't get to have everyone. Ultimately, this rider of death wants to remove the image of God from the earth altogether. And he'll do it however he can. He's open to all kinds of opinions. So this isn't a political statement in some of the things I'm saying. I'm just saying them. He'll do them through sickness. He'll remove people through overdose. He'll remove people through suicide. He'll remove people through murder. He'll remove people through neglect. He'll remove people through abortion. He'll remove people through countries coming alongside of people to kill them. He'll move through war. This rider, he's open to options. He just wants to snuff people out. And we think that we're being kind. And we're following in the footsteps of this fourth rider, lifting up his agenda, thinking that we're just being nice. And the reality is that these riders just keep riding and spreading destruction. Listen to this quote by Leon Morris in his commentary in Revelation. He said, the condition of the empire was worldwide power, outwardly victorious, and eager for fresh conquests, yet full of elements of unrest, misery, war, scarcity, pestilence, mortality in all of its forms. And this repeats over and over. These riders were, this is what was going on in the Roman Empire. And this is what has been going on ever since. And these riders will continue to ride wherever Jesus isn't worshipped. These are the results of resisting his rule and reign in our world and in our hearts. And when we hear about this stuff, when we hear about conquest and war and blood and injustice and greed and death, what happens? Inwardly, we groan, or we should. We groan. Oh, you see, you see what's going on in Turkey and Syria. We groan. Why? Why do these things happen? We see people driving into daycares. Why does this happen? We see people struggling, taking their lives. Why does this happen? We see addicts. Why does this happen? Why? We groan. Romans 8 talks about all of creation groaning in pain. One of, one of our kids, when they get sick, they groan. My wife sometimes is like, why are they groaning? I'm like, because they're sick. That's what sick people do. You're special. You sleep. We groan, right? We all groan in our sickness. And some Christians have an escapism view that God won't, all these things are happening, but God won't let his people ever go through it. I would say you haven't really, if that's your view, you haven't read the book of Revelation. And you're out of touch with what's actually going on around the world. Last week, we had a conference called Movement Montreal Conference. Fifteen churches coming together, over 200 people there. It was, it's amazing what God is doing in our city right now. Amazing. 
the church working together in unity. But I, I met a woman from another country who, uh, who came to Canada years ago fleeing persecution in her country. Uh, her children were lit on fire because they were Christians. This happens. You're like, no, 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 Jesus is just going to get me up in one of those little, have you ever done a drive-thru in a bank and you put your money in that little shoot thing and it goes, right? And it goes inside and then they shoot you back your receipt or whatever. It's like God's going to put us in one of those little shoots and we're just going to go up and we're going to be free from all of what's going on. But that's just not what happens. It's not true. It's not true. The fifth seal, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What a sobering picture that is. Witnesses who have, who have died or, or suffered because of being followers of Jesus. Being in the presence of God. And their prayer is, how, how long? How long, God, before you're going to do something? How long before you're going to reverse the world's judgment on God's people? How long? And the response is a little bit longer. It's a little bit longer. Rest. He gives them white robes. Remember the first rider came, imitating, full of evil, wearing white to deceive? God says, you don't get to wear white that way. And he gives white robes to, to those who have, who have been killed and suffered, reminding them that you're my people. And today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you already wear white. You already wear white. You're blameless in his sight. You, you still mess up. You still sin. You're still, you're still off. But yet you wear white. You wear white. And their sinless prayer is how long? What we see right away is that God gives his passive wrath. And I can't get into this super deep, but there's two aspects to God's wrath. One, the active wrath of God, where God intentionally brings wrath in his, his fury against his enemies. But there's another aspect, passive wrath. And passive wrath is where God actually gives people what they want. Oh, you wanted this? Here, go ahead. Listen to, to verse 12 through 17. This is deeply symbolic, okay? So don't, don't be thinking literal in, in this. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. In, in essence, what, what John is seeing is creation collapsing. That's what's happening. Creation is absolutely co collapsing. Verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? God, in essence, is saying, you've worshipped creation. You've wanted creation to protect you and comfort you and 
find your control and find your identity there. Here it is. And God removes his sustaining hand of protection from even his enemies, and creation collapses in on those who worship it. And this is really the start of the final judgment. This is the start of God wrapping everything up. And what's fascinating, it's not fascinating, it's dark, is that these people aren't atheists. They're not sitting in a seminary somewhere debating theologians about the existence of God. These are the kings and rulers and the most powerful people in the earth. And they do several things. One, they acknowledge God. Two, they know that he is doing it. And three, they still try and avoid him in his judgment by asking creation to put them out of their misery. How dark of a place do you need to be that you finally see God, you see what he's doing, and instead of saying, would you please rescue me? You say, creation, please kill me so that I don't need to deal with him. This is very representative of Pharaoh in Egypt, which you can't get into that story. But Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go, and his heart kept getting harder and harder and harder. And rather than submitting to God, he became so hard that he became an enemy of God and ultimately killed by God. And they asked this question who can stand? Who can stand? They're experiencing this passive wrath of God where creation is now falling apart and falling onto them. Who can stand? Cue the people running upstairs, right? Creation is falling. I planned that so well. It's amazing. Who can stand? The most powerful losing everything. Who can stand? Hopeless. Who can stand? Well, we get to remember the throne room. We as God's people get to remember the throne room. And so we have chapter six here. And what we're going to do, because I know you love chronology, we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to go backwards into chapter 7. Before these, these four horsemen come, listen, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. So before these horsemen get to ride, God is going to, God is going to protect his people. Commentators think that the four winds of the earth are the four horsemen. They're being held back from bringing destruction yet. So God is saying, hold on. Before you get to go, I'm going to do something. And listen to what he does in chapter 7, verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. This seal isn't like the seal that, that's over the scrolls. This seal is one that marks people and that marks them on their forehead. It is being owned by God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or trees until we have uh, sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe, the sons of Israel. So there's 144,000 sealed before the scroll is ever opened. Before the scroll is ever opened. Um, now, 144,000, not a literal number. It's a symbolic number, and it means complete, and it's meant to just be a massive number. So it's like, hey, go, go, count, the, go count the sand. When, when we're at the beach and kids are like, I'm bored, I'm like, I'll go count the sand, and it'll be amazing. You know, it's so fun. Go count the stars. Not Montreal, go out of the city, count the stars. But it's that idea that there's, there's too many. There's too much. Now let's do a little math. Why 144,000? Um, who's really good at math? Come on, you confident people. 12 times 12. 
All right, you are awesome. I can see there's some McGill graduates in the room, right? We're, we're nailing it. Um, your profs are watching, by the way. They're watching. Uh, 144, right? What's 144 times 10? Times 10. Times 10. 144,000. This number that we just came to, 144 times 10 times 10 times 10. You're like, I didn't know I was going to get math. You're welcome. I love you. It's Super Bowl day. I'm more happy than normal. Um, but it's this idea that it's, it's massive, uncountable, and complete. But here's, here's why we're told this. This is really for the people of God. We're told before stuff hits the fan, before things get really bad, every person in the kingdom of God is known and sealed. That this tribulation, what's going to come, cannot remove you from God's kingdom. If the rider of death gets you, you're not removed from the kingdom of God. If you experience incredible injustice, you're not removed from the kingdom of God. If people take advantage of you and conquer you, you are not removed from the kingdom of God. This is really good news, especially for people living in the first century and those who have lived in persecuted places all throughout the world. Really good news. For us, persecution, no, it's not persecution, but for us, it's like, oh man, 10, 10.30 service, it's a little early, you know, like following Jesus is kind of tough on me. It's like, oh, brother, sister, for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, for them to worship Jesus at all is, am I going to lose my head today? Is this going to be the day where I'm, I'm brought in for questioning and, and it's all done? We, we haven't had that yet come to us. But that's reality. And so to know that before I have to live in this world, God already knows me, has sealed me, stamped me, loves me, is for me. In fact, he gives us something like Revelation 8, verse 35. Listen to this. This is written to the Romans, many of whom would probably die. And Paul writes this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? And he says in verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You feel unlovable? Bathe yourself in this bubble bath of Romans 8, 35 to 39. It's not this touchy feeling, I don't feel like God loves me. We look at the cross and we see that Jesus intentionally set his face to go to the cross for you, die for you, for your sin, for your rebellion. Not when you become likable, but when you were unlovable. Not when you brought yourself to life, but when you were dead. Not when you were part of his family, but when you were an enemy, Christ died for you. His love is unfathomable, which means we can't fully measure it. But the picture we get is of him on the cross. Who else would die for you? Not many people. But he not only died for you, but he died the death of death for you so that you don't have to experience an eternal death. You get him forever. This is good news. This is good news. This is good news for a persecuted church and for a sleepy church. This is good news. 
So we get that picture. We're sealed and stamped. We're his. Then we get what's going to happen. Then we get in Revelation 7, 9 to 12, what happens at the end. And this is amazing. We get a future picture. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. You remember that rider that's trying to put nation against nation? Team against team? Er, He doesn't win. What we see is a picture of a great number, a multitude from every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Why palm branches? Um, Have you ever been to a Canadians game? Doesn't matter. Uh, At the Canadians game or any sporting event where teams do sports and stuff, uh, they have little number ones right? Little foam thing you put on. Uh, For the Canadians, it should be a thumbs down this year, but nonetheless, number one, you know, our team's great, amazing. Um, That's a palm branch. That's a palm branch, that there's this group of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, group, that on earth, we were against one another, but now around the throne, we're together, focused on Jesus with number ones on our hands and crying out a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And do you know who's there? You. If you're part of the people of God, you're in this picture. John sees you. You're already there. You like the, the, the movies where you can't figure out where in time things are at? God exists outside of time and yet enters into time. So in a very real sense, God is enjoying you now being around his throne while you're sitting here. Absolutely wild. Absolutely wild. But this gives us confidence, and, and these people are singing. We sing when our team wins. We sing when, when we're excited about things. We sing about what we're most excited about. Or you live your whole life in a musical, and you just sing all the time. Um, but this is good news for us, because we, if we believe that's true, then even as we exist in this world where four horsemen are riding like crazy, we can still sing with tears in our eyes and hope in our hearts confidently expecting that Jesus is going to win. And earthquakes and massacres and and death will not have the final say, Jesus will. This is good news, that he's won. And our passage ends with this. Verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him night and day in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. One day, death is going to be done. One day, death is going to be over. One day, someone is going to cry the last tear. And God is going to do this tear removal ministry where he walks around wiping the last tear from our eye because sin and and sickness and death and hell will be no more for his people. One day you're going to be with him. I can't wait. I can't wait. One day we're going to be 
in his presence, enjoying the life that we were made to enjoy. One day we're going to be with people from all tribes and tongues and nations and people groups and around his throne, enjoying him together. But our passage doesn't end just yet. One more verse. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, remember there were seven seals. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Now, all the commentators aren't quite sure exactly what's going on here, but, but two things seem to pop up. Uh, one, there's, there's, the silence is, is indicating that God is making his final moves of judgment. History is getting brought to an end as we know it. And new creation is about to, to transpire, and, and the old is going to be gone, and the new is going to be made new, and God's enemies will be removed, and his people will be brought to him, and this new reality will transpire. That that's what's beginning. We're sure of that. But most commentators think that this, this silence is actually God honing in and listening to the prayers of his people. That we're participating we're participating with God in the end of the world. We're participating with God by him listening to our prayers. How long is this going to go on for? How long are people going to suffer in this way? How long are you going to let injustices happen and like this? How long? And not, not to diminish God's ability to say he needs everyone to be quiet like I do in my house. I'm like, all right, quiet. You know, I just need quiet. I need to focus. We're driving through a snowstorm and the kids are yelling. I'm like, just quiet. I need to focus. God could have all the screaming going on around him and he could focus. But this is symbolic that heaven is being quiet so that the prayers of the saints for 2,000 plus years are coming up and God is focusing on them and listening. And he's saying, okay, now, now I'm going to move. Now I'm going to act. Now I'm going to answer the prayers that have been prayed for millennia. Now I'm going to finally put an end to evil once and for all. Listen to this quote by Jacques Allel. The Christian who prays acts more effectively and more decisively on society than the person who is politically involved with all the sincerity of faith put into the involvement. It's not a matter of seeing them in opposition to one another, but of inverting our instinctive cultural hierarchy of values. When something is happening, our instinct is to say, I'm going to do something about it. Something bad takes place. I'm going to protest it. I'm going to boycott it. I'm going to whatever. And God is saying, yeah, like, sure, protest. It's fine, but come to me. Come to me. Pray. Don't, don't protest and boycott without, without the prayers. Ask me to make things right. Participate with me in this. Because here's the thing. He hears you. He hears you. He stores things up. Did your parents ever save any of, like, the weird things you did in, like, grade two? You know, like, I remember my parents say it's really weird, but like you dried out an apple and kind of made it this thing and they saved it for a super long time. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's why we got colds most winters because that rotting apple is down in our basement, right? But they like store, they store this stuff up. God is storing up your prayers. They're precious to him. You might say, I don't know how to pray. Well, pray like a child does. Jesus teaches us how to pray in, in Matthew chapter six, but he hears you. In prayers, when you say, this is what I think is really important for the world, so I'm giving it to you, God, and you tell me what you actually think is most important. When we learn to pray 
your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. It's saying, here's my agenda that I have. I'm giving it to you. I want your agenda. I want your agenda for my relationship. I want your agenda for my education. I want your agenda for where I live. I want your agenda for where I work. I want your agenda for how I use my money. I want your agenda for how I interact with people. I want your agenda. Your will be done, not mine. I want your kingdom to come, not mine. And we're invited into this. Let your will be done. All right, so how do we respond to this? We're going to respond in a few different ways this morning. It's going to be different. It's going to be different than we usually do. We're not going to sing uh, again this morning. Um, but let me explain how we respond. Uh, first, if, you if you're a follower of Jesus and you participate with the four horsemen, if you're out to conquer people and you're out to bring um, greed and injustice for yourself and you are uh, warring against people or you're participating in the death of individuals, you are invited and not just invited, commanded by Jesus today to be the last day that happens. You're like, yeah, my job required. Stop your job. Yeah, my, my program says drop out of your program. God is not inviting you into something that's going to go against his kingdom. But my relationship, stop your relationship. God is not inviting you into something that goes against what he has clearly laid out for people. He's really, really clear in his word about what it looks like to follow him in his kingdom. And if you participate with these four horsemen, today's a day where that ends. We don't do that anymore. And it's not just that we stop, it's that we also partner with Jesus and what he's doing. So we repent. I was going this way. Repenting is a, not a, I'm just going to stop. I don't know what to do now. Repenting is I was going this way and now I'm turning and I'm going this way. And I'm going your way, Jesus. Today is a day of repentance. If you're living in opposition to God, Jesus comes to you with a gentle tone, not a like loud on cold meds, angry tone, right? It's a, hey, come to me. Come to me. I'm better than that thing. That thing's going to leave you lifeless. It's going to steal from you. Come, come to me. Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's ferocious. He's lion-like, but he's a lamb. He's gentle and lowly and wants you to find your identity and everything in him. He also wants to tell you that you are secure. You think by, that by losing that thing, you're losing your security, but that thing could never give you security. If you look for anything in creation to give you security, it's going to fall on you and destroy you. The creator became the, the rescuer. It says, come to me and I'll, I'll forgive you everything you've ever done and ever will do. I'll bring you into my kingdom. I'll make you new. I'll make you new and I'll make you secure. And I'll let you know how it's all going to end, which he is in the book of Revelation. We don't need to know a date or a time or whatever, but we know that it's going to end with Jesus' victory. So what do we do now? Well, if you don't know Jesus, would you meet him today? Would you meet him? He is here. He's in our presence. He's walking the aisles. He knows your heart. He knows what's going on. And he wants for you to turn from what you found your life and then to turn to him and say, Jesus, your death on the cross was for me. You rose. That was for me. And I need you. I need you. He'll change you. He'll give you a new heart, new mind, new desires, a whole new path. You'll be sealed. No one can snatch you out of his hand. If you already know Jesus, then we're invited to, to do two things. We're going to do this together. Um, the second one we're not necessarily going to do together today, um, but it's, it's to witness. It's to witness. Have you ever asked the question, why am I here? Why am I alive? 
I have an answer for you. The reason you're alive right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to participate with him in the Great Commission. That's the only reason. What's a Great Commission? That we as a people of God would go make disciples of all nations, talking to people about who Jesus is and what he's done. That's the only reason you're alive. That's it. We have an enemy also who wants to distract us away from that. He'll help us be a church that's much more communal and like the church is just about community. Church is not just about community. The church is a community that is a witness to the world of what it looks like to be nourished by Jesus. That we go out to, to tell that the vendors in Babylon are just serving death. And we don't do that in a judgmental, self-righteous type of way. We go out saying, I used to eat at this place. Death. Right? How many of you, when you get food poisoning someplace, are like, Yelp, five stars. Go eat there as fast as you can. You're like, horrible. Don't go there. Please don't. You want to like stop people from ever going there. Again, we get to go and say, you don't have to eat in any of these places. There's a nourishment that will never end. And it's offered to us now. You're here to fulfill the Great Commission. And so if there's something that's getting in the way of you opening your mouth about who Jesus is, well, then we're going to ask him to search that out today. Because that's why you're here. That's why you're here. The third thing that we're going to do, we're actually going to do this, is we're going to pray. We're going to take time to pray together as a church. Um, and we're, we're going to pray, and I'm going to lead us through a time of prayer. Um, so uh, I have a microphone up here. I prefer you not, like, lean against my face and speak into this one. Uh, so I have one here as well. Um, and so what I'm going to do is, at times, I'm going to invite anyone, if they'd like to come up and, and pray for us about something specific, to do that. Um, what I'm not inviting you to do is to come up and, like, say something long or something into the microphone. We'll just shut off the microphone at that point. I, and I'm serious. Like, we just want to pray. This is not, like, sermon number, I think my sermon was long enough, right? It's 48 minutes. Welcome. Uh, I won today. All right. Uh, but this is really so that we, we pray, and if the Spirit is leading you to pray or lead us in prayer for something, then please, I'd invite you to do that. So uh, first thing is we're going we're gonna to take, there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. We're going to start with 30 seconds of silence, because I know 30 minutes would be a really long time for us. And so uh, 30 seconds, we're going we're gonna to pray. And here's what I want as the prompt. Are you really a part of his people? Are you really part of the people of God? And I don't, I don't say that in like a weird, morbid, introspective way, like, I don't know, one time I had a really bad thought. It, you're going to have bad thoughts. You're still going to do bad things. You're still going to sin as part of the people of God. But do you want him more than you want that thing? And if you're not part of the people of God, then take this time and say, okay, I remember praying to Jesus when I didn't really even think I believed in Jesus. And I said, Jesus, if you're real, if you were real, would you change me? And if you're not, then uh, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning, everything's going to be fine. And he changed me. So he's even honored with, with that prayer. Jesus, if you're real, and if that's where you're at, we'll take these 30 seconds and pray that type of way. So let me give you time. Am I really part of the people of God? Or can I ask Jesus to let me be part of his people?